So I started moving my way across, and you kind of have a little face section that you have to get across to get into the big corner of the open book, and it's really kind of where the open book starts. And I got my foot on a little nub, and I was like, all right, I'll, I'll try it out. And I stepped on it, and I was moving my hands, and then all of a sudden I slipped and started falling. I'm Matt Hansen, and you're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to eliminate fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. You can support this project and the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by making an online donation today. Go to tetoncountysar.org slash donate. And if you like this podcast, please leave us a review. It's one of the best ways to help other people find the fine line so that we can continue to bring you new episodes that seek to positively shift backcountry culture. And thanks for listening. This episode of The Fine Line is brought to you by Roadhouse Brewing Company, supporting backcountry safety and the Jackson Hole community since 2012. Located in the heart of the Tetons, Roadhouse Brewing Company embodies the authentic spirit of the West, where your word is your honor, quality is your craft, and adventure is rooted in your soul. For more information on Roadhouse and its Town Square pub and eatery, visit roadhousebrewery.com. Located about four miles up Garnet Canyon in Grand Teton National Park is a climb called Open Book. Exum Mountain Guides describes it this way. Open Book ascends a massive dihedral on the south face of Disappointment Peak above Garnet Canyon, about an hour or so above the Loop and Meadows Trailhead. Its seven pitches are steep, hard, and intimidating. Overhangs, cracks of all sizes and varieties, underclings, laybacks, and serious exposure are the order of the day. And retreat is difficult. For local climbers, Lars Scow and Sahir Enriquez, this sounded like the perfect way to spend the sunny Sunday afternoon of July 25th, 2021. But because you're listening to this podcast, you can assume that the day was not the Sunday cruise they hoped it would be with Lars taking a nasty fall that caused severe injuries to both of his legs. The ensuing rescue effort shows the multiple pieces that must come together to deliver a successful outcome. That includes Lars himself, who had to do some serious self-rescue as the patient, and Sahir, who was thrust into the role of first responder to care for his friend. The witnesses from below the fall, who put in the original 911 call and stuck around till the end to make sure everything was okay. The JLA climbing ranger, who came onto the scene via helicopter short haul, and the helicopter pilot, who put the ranger there and then plucked him and Lars off the face of the mountain with some incredibly precise flying. They all join us in this episode to share their own unique perspectives from that day in the Tetons and leave us with some very valuable lessons. So, so here and I had gone on the climbing adventure the week before and we kind of got a late start and just were kind of poking around and we decided we wanted to do another climb the next week. And so the Saturday before the 24th, Sahir and I met at the Boulder Park and we were just kind of dinking around and we were talking about objectives and Sahir brought up open book, said that it was a pretty moderate route, uh, five pitches long, a good alpine objective, nothing too crazy outside of either of our comfort zones. My name is Lars Scow. Uh, grew up here in Jackson, Wyoming. I'm a painter by trade. Kind of been 
dabbling in construction my whole life. I started climbing when I was 10 years old. I climbed the Grand for the first time when I was 11. Just been something I've kind of enjoyed doing my whole life. So we took a look at the guidebook that night, organized our gear, and just kind of approached it as another climb. Um, so here and I have climbed together 10, 15 times. So we both felt pretty comfortable with each other and kind of knew what we were getting into. At least we thought we did. And the decision-making going up to it felt, you know, pretty standard. I felt like we did a, a good job of preparing ourselves for it, picked the gear that we wanted to use and, you know, got our ropes ready. And I don't know, we went to bed at a decent time. And then we woke up early, got in the truck, blasted out to Lupin Meadows, and then started the approach. Lars was back for the summer, and I was really excited to have him back. We had uh, done a climbing trip to Red Rock. We did harder objectives, longer routes. So yeah. we definitely felt like it was within our realm to take on this route. So Enriquez, I'm originally from Mexico. I was born there. I was brought over when I was two, grew up here in Jackson. I've been climbing since I was 19, but taking it pretty seriously for the last five years. And I work for Coombs Outdoors, one of the best non-profits in town. Um, I know that the open book is a steep route, but I had no doubt that we would get to the top and be fine. We definitely underestimated that day. I yeah. thought it would be a casual outing. It's a big open corner, and that's why it gets the, uh, the name The Open Book. It is steep, but moderate terrain. And then the pitch is a rope length, so about 190 feet or so if you're using a 60-meter rope. Yeah, I think that's a good description of it. It is capped with, um, at the top of, the, I think, the fourth pitch. There's a, a big roof at the top of that open book, which is a, a defining feature of that route. And it, it would be, yeah, on the harder end of, of a moderate alpine route in the Tetons um, at 5.9. That's a fairly upper end of like a moderate grade in the Tetons. My name is Philip Edmonds. Um, I'm a climbing ranger in Grand Teton National Park. I moved out here in 2001 for the mountains and climbing and skiing. Fell in love with it, got a job with the climbing rangers in Jenny Lake in 2010. Been living the seasonal lifestyle, working as a climbing ranger in the summer and uh, ski patrol at Grand Targhee Resort in the winter. So kind of live on both sides of the pass. Oh, it was a beautiful day. I mean, bluebird, not a lot of wind. I think there was a little bit of smoke in the valley, but I mean, it was just a really crisp, clear day. And it was, I mean, when we started hiking up, it was maybe like 50 degrees. So, you know, we were gonna nail it, get it, beat the heat and get to the top and, you know, early afternoon and I don't know. I think we had plans to of getting back around 2 p.m. Yeah. It's like, oh, it'll be easy. Yeah. You know, so a walk out, yeah. we have to wrap. We were planning on just trading pitches as we went up, and it was going to be a Sunday cruise, you know. Um, yeah, like Sahir said, I was back for the summer helping my dad frame a house, and so I was excited. I had been living in San Antonio for the past two years, and I have been doing some sport climbing there, but there's nothing like the Tetons, you know. Like, it's all single pitch maybe like 50 or 60 feet and so I when I got back I was jonesing to get into the mountains and do some some bigger tragic objectives and uh, a lot of stoke definitely feeling ready to to go for it so that was my mentality going into it and I was amped up and 
probably, yeah, a little overzealous for sure. I felt confident that the day was going to be beautiful, and I knew Sahir had my back, and you know, we're going to go do it. We kind of picked our way up to the base of the climb, and we started looking at it. You know, we just looked at each other, kind of took a second, put our shoes on, got our gear ready, racked and roped up, checked each other out, and then I threw Sahir on belay. He was going to lead the first pitch, and had all of our stuff in our backpack. We were ready to go. Psyched. Yeah, we got up to where the climb starts, kind of sized it up. I combined the first and the second pitch. Minimal rope drag. Pretty fun climbing. It was steep. I uh, got to the end of the second pitch, built an anchor, used a tunnel, so a natural anchor, slung a rock, backed it up with a piece, and brought Larzy up for the third pitch. Got up there and... I had just cleaned that route, so I had a majority of the gear, and I took the rest of the gear over from Sahir. I'm a, I'm a newer trad climber. I've only been doing trad for maybe like 18 months at this point. Okay, a few quick definitions. Everyone knows what trad climbing is, right? Well, I had to look it up. Trad is short for traditional, which makes sense. The kind of climbing everyone did back in the day before all these other kinds of climbing disciplines emerged. Trad basically means that you're placing anchors in the rock for protection while you piece together a route up the mountain. You'll also hear Lars and Sahir talk about laybacking. That's a maneuver where a climber is lying back horizontally. Think of your position when you're kicking back in a lawn chair, sipping lemonade on a hot day. Except there's no lemonade, and you're actually trying to climb up from beneath a ledge or outcrop. The harder you pull on the rock with your hands, the stronger purchase you have with your feet. That's a key move on the open book. All right, back to Lars. Definitely kind of new to it, but I was excited to to kind of push my limits a little bit. I felt like in this situation, it's a more aggressive route, kind of how Phil was describing it. It's at the top end of a moderate selection of a route. Definitely felt confident, but I was nervous too when I took over and I saw the next pitch. I mean, it starts with this kind of layback move, maybe up 15 feet, and the feet are kind of spotty. But I felt confident, and I was I was ready to go for it. And so I climbed up, and I put a cam just below where the layback started. And I was up there, and I was looking at it, and I got kind of nervous. And so I came back down, and I worked my way back down to here, and I just was taking some deep breaths, kind of getting ready for it, and... Uh, Chalked up, so here was like, you got it, man, go for it. And so then I started working my way back up to where I put the piece in, took a little breather, chalked up, and started making my way up the laybacks. And was just, had my feet out kind of more horizontally in front of me. And so I was using a lot of body tension to hold onto that crack and just kind of working my way up. And I got towards the top of the layback and I threw a little heel hook on was just kind of taking a little break because it was a little slippier, slipperier than I had thought and I was like getting a little nervous at the top of the laybacks and I wanted to stop and put a piece in to protect that top part and for some reason I maybe I felt like I wasn't gonna have enough time to get a piece in there or I wasn't super confident trying to get a piece into that 
crack that I was trying to protect. It was kind of facing the other way for me and I didn't really feel super confident trying to get back in there and get a good piece placed in there. And so I looked to my left and kind of up maybe another 10 feet diagonally from the top of the layback is a nice big like hand crack with a nice solid ledge. And there's even some shrubbery kind of growing up there. And I was like, well, if I can just kind of send it over there, I can like put a good couple of pieces in, get a good rest and get ready to do the hand crack section. So I started moving my way across and you kind of have a little face section that you have to get across to get into the big corner of the open book and it's really kind of where the open book starts. And I got my foot on a little nub and I was like, all right, I'll, I'll try it out. And I stepped on it and I was moving my hands and then all of a sudden I slipped and started falling. And uh, I was falling for a while. I was falling and then I kept falling and I knew that I was in some trouble. I had definitely taken a big fall. You went up, you tested it out, the feet are slick. I went back later that summer and did that route and led that pitch and the feet are no joke especially because you're laybacking and you're exposed and all you want to do is put a piece in, but it's a kind of a blind piece when you're laybacking. And I also didn't want to throw him off because he was concentrated. I, I knew he had it. He, he seemed to be able to move through that terrain. I didn't want to yell like, hey, plug a piece in, but that's all I really wanted him to do. And when he went back up, it seemed like he had it, but slipped, saw him swing right into the corner of the wall. And then that's when he flew past me. And that's when things got real. All of a sudden, it wasn't a casual outing anymore. It reminded me of skydiving. All of a sudden, I felt the pull on my harness, and I kind of slammed into the side of the rock, and I just, you know, had a moment of like, okay, I'm, I'm not falling, and I'm not dead. Like, I'm, I'm still alive. Right then, I looked down, and I could see that my foot was, like, on the inside of my leg, and I knew right away that this... Sunday cruise that we were trying to take was no longer Sunday cruise. Like, this was the real deal now. And I heard Sahir yell down to me, you know, Lars, are you okay? I was like, yeah, you know, just knee-jerk reaction. Like, I'm awake, you know, I'm around. And uh, I looked down and I was looking at my leg and I knew that my left leg was jacked up. But I didn't, I was hoping that it was just broken really bad and that I didn't have any compound fracture or anything like that. And as soon as I looked at the other side of my leg, I could see my tibia, my fibia sticking out, and just like, I don't know, all the bits of the inside of my leg hanging out. And so I knew then, you know, the adrenaline started to kick in, and part of me just was like, you gotta focus on what's going on right now. You know, you gotta keep your head, you can't lose your shit, because. Your body needs you and you gotta stay alive. You know, this is the real deal. And I was still probably at that point like 150 or maybe even like 125 feet in the air. So I had a long ways down still, you know, that I could possibly fall. So I was near a blocky section of the route and I was asking Sahir, can you lower me down anymore? You know, can you give me any more rope to go down? And he got me as far as he could, but there was a knot in the rope, and so he couldn't get me to go down any farther. At this blocky section, I tried to stand on my right leg so that I could just kind of assess the situation and get into a, a stable spot. And instead of my 
leg supporting my weight, my knee just buckled to the outside, and I slant, I fell into the side of the wall. And so then I'm hanging there, and my legs are just kind of like crossed, and I just was like, oh man, this is really bad. Like, there's no way I'm going to be able to walk out of here. This is not good. And luckily, I mean, this is an insane part of the story, but there was a climbing party down below us, these two ladies, and they had seen me fall. And so at this point, I'm kind of trying to figure out what to do. And they're yelling up to me, are, are you guys okay? And I'm like, no, I'm not okay. I got a compound fracture in my left ankle. And I'm pretty sure I blew out my right knee. Like, that's what I thought. Is I just torn the ligaments in my knee. And so, no, we're going to need to call search and rescue. And these ladies were right on it. They were like, okay, well, we're going to get right on it. The two women below were Haddon Goodman and Julia Heemstra. They were also heading up to climb the open book, but were running about 10 minutes late because Julia had to run back to her house to grab a pair of pants, which she had earlier forgotten. This put them about one pitch below Lars and Sahir. Both Haddon and Julia are longtime Jackson locals who regularly climb in the Tetons. We were right underneath the open book when Lars fell, of course, we could see that there was a party one pitch up when we were approaching the climb. Well, my name's Julia Heemstra. I'm in the process of establishing a nonprofit organization here in Jackson, also a nonprofit organization in South Africa where I do my work. And my work involves establishing sustainable water systems at schools in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. Um, and these schools are on the brink of having to close because they don't have water. And I've been climbing in the Tetons for 19 summers now. There's a small little roof right under the base of where you start the first pitch. And um, we were sitting underneath that. I was racking up and putting my shoes on. We had heard of course, voices above us. We were aware that there was a party above us. We had our helmets on because of that. And literally, as we were sitting there, we heard something go whizzing by us. Having been in the Tetons quite a bit, you come to understand what a falling rock sounds like, what an avalanche sounds like. And this was not either one of those. And it turns out that that was actually Lars's piece of gear that pulled, that went whizzing right by us. And then we actually heard the impact and then we heard yelling. I jumped out immediately and got to a point where I could see them and I could see that Lars had taken this fall and yelled up, do you need, need us to call 911? They were like, yes. Couldn't quite see the severity of the injuries, but it was clear that it had been a really significant fall. And it was also clear at that point that Lars was injured. So then I was telling to hear, you know, what do you need me to do? You know, what do you, what do you think? And he's like, well, I, I want you to get off the end of the rope so that I can wrap down to you. I don't want to try and wrap on the rope right now. So then I was like, all right, I got to get off the end of the rope here. And I had all the gear cause I was leading. So I just picked some cracks that were kind of in front of me and I plugged in two cams and tried to make sure they were kind of equalized and in a good spot. And I didn't really want to try and take a bunch of time to build a, an anchor or anything like that. So I just clipped in direct to those two cams and kind of made sure they were really set, untied from the rope and kind of 
gentled myself down onto it, loaded it really softly, and then told Sahira I was off the end of the rope, and he started cleaning up up there and getting ready to come down. Meanwhile, the ladies were in communication with me, you know, asking me my name and kind of the what was going on, if I was allergic to anything. And then they were like, yep, we got in contact with Search and Rescue. They're going to be coming out here as soon as possible. And so then Sahir was able to wrap down to me. And Were you in danger at all of falling? Um, if the anchor would have blown, I would have gone down with them. But luckily the an- anchor was in a good spot. There was a, uh, a cam that was protecting against the upward pole. So I didn't get really pulled up. It, the sling didn't come off. I mean, it was through a tunnel. It was a natural anchor. So it was pretty solid. It was on the mountain. Lars, I'm I'm really amazed that given your precarious situation that you had the presence of mind to put protection in as you were on the rope in order to lower yourself down. I feel like it's the human thing that we all have that maybe we don't recognize until we're in a situation like that. But, you know, the body is trying to stay alive. And, you know, I feel like as soon as I realized that I was in in a a dangerous situation and I had hurt myself and I needed to really focus and make a sound decision to stay alive, my body just went into autopilot kind of and the adrenaline or whatever it was just kind of helped me keep focusing on the next thing that I had to do right then and not worrying about, you know, when I was going to get off or, you know, what was going to happen with the weather or if Sahir was going to make it down. It was more just like, all right, right now I need to get off the end of the rope. How do I do that? What do I need to do? And I mean, my bones were scraping around on the rocks and it was just excruciating to like move around and try and place gear and get gear off my harness, but it's just what I had to do. And so I I did it, you know. That was a critical step in your self-rescue, the initial part of the rescue is being able to get directly onto the anchor mm-hmm. that you built and so Sahir could escape his belay and get down to you. Yeah. Um, that was definitely a great thing you're able to do. Yeah, I mean, I just didn't know what else to do, you know. Like, there, was, I had to do something. And I was also kind of nervous because I think the piece that I had placed right below the laybacking section, it, it must have slipped out or could have broke the rock or something, but it wasn't, like, a super great placement. And so having gone through that and then be like, all right, now i got to really put in some good pieces and make sure that I'm, like, you know, going to be safe here. I think climbing that pitch about 10 times like I know that placement and there is like a a little bit of a pocket behind the initial opening of that crack and it it can get wider in the back and I could see how how a placement could could not be super secure in that spot yeah if it jiggled around a little bit yeah I'm sure I'm not the most experienced trad climber and like placing gear is definitely something that I just need to be better at looking back you know hindsight's 2020 but definitely something that I should have been way more competent in before I decided to really push it in that in that environment, you know? Like, that is totally irresponsible of me to just feel like, oh, yeah, I can go up there and I can just, you know, play some pieces and I'll be fine. Like, watching Sahir when he leads, he throws pieces in so fast, but it comes from the experience of knowing, okay, this is this crack size that I'm climbing, I know exactly what piece I'm going for, and I can get it in there and get safe super fast. Whereas in my situation, sometimes I'll misjudge the crack size or I'll grab the wrong piece and I'll spend a bunch of time kind of messing around and trying to get it super safe. And, you know, that's not ideal, especially 
in that kind of cruxy moment where I'm exposed and feeling like, oh man, I want to get out of this area. Being able to do it safely is something that I definitely needed more skill in. I will say that the Tetons are notorious for just bad quality rock just from the freeze and thaws. So you have to be real particular with your placements. And where Lars happened to place that point three, it was in some bad rock. And so when he did swing into the wall, that piece blew out. I heard it just zing past me. It stayed on the rope, but I looked at it afterwards, and the lobe was a little sheared just from the force of the fall. Once he started falling, I felt that you know his life was literally going through my hands. I was like, Lars, I'm not losing you. I'm not losing you. Somehow I was able to throw that overhand, and it got stuck in the rope. And eventually I could like look around and assess the situation. I knew I had to go indirect to get down to him. I had to put my, the rope on the anchor, rappel down, but the rope was weighted because he was hanging in the air. So I had to undo that knot, you know, back up the belay device, and then eventually lower him down to a ledge. And man, it took forever to take that knot off. I had to use my nut tool to undo that um, knot. Lars started putting some pieces in. I had to yell down Lars, you know, try to secure yourself onto the wall if you can. My thought was like, maybe I get down to him and we could repel, but in the way he sounded, in the way I looked down when his leg was facing the wrong way, I knew that repelling down would be a bad idea because he'd just be hitting the wall. And plus, there was blood too. There was already blood on the rock that I could see. You were able to get down to him? I was, yeah. After undoing the knot, I was able to put the... Well, once he undid the knot, I was able to lower him some ledge. He placed some protection, and then I was able to put the rope on the anchor and get down to him. But, I mean, so many thoughts were going through my head just because the rope was weighted. At the time, I did not have the proper training to unweight and do a counter repel, which is what you're supposed to do to get down to someone. So I've, you know, visited with mentors and talked about it, gone through the scenario just so I could be ready for another situation like that. So it was a learning experience for myself as well. Yeah, so I rappelled down to him. Um, I looked at the situation. I saw that his bone was sticking out. And Lars was maintaining his cool so much. I was like, oh, my God, if I was in that situation, I'd be wailing. I'd be crying. I'd be like, oh, I'm going to die out here. But he was just like, hey, I'm not in a good way. I'm not in a good way. And I was like, hey, we're going to get you out of here, man. Those ladies called the helicopter. You'll be fine. We're going to make sure you're good. I tried to position him the best I could. There was too much pain as soon as I tried to adjust him. I put a backpack under him. I looked at the injury compound fracture. He was bleeding. I decided to throw a tourniquet on it, so I used one of my slings and my nut tool again and just cranked it as hard as I could to stop the bleeding. Made a bad call of not refilling our water bottles, and it was starting to get real hot. It was around noon, and Lars was thirsty. You know, he was in shock for sure. Lars, you know, he's a Norwegian, so he's already pretty pale, but he was going whiter than white. I mean, I was just like, oh, my God, this guy's going to bleed out. All I wanted from him was to stay awake to help out with the rescue because I knew it would be a lot harder for the rescuers to get him out if he was just unconscious. Open book, correct me if I'm wrong, is that a south-facing climb? It is, right. yep. So, yeah, you're probably in direct sunlight most of the day in late July. Oh, Definitely. Yeah. So it was getting hot on the wall, too. Yeah. And so we were out of water. <laughs> yeah. And when I was in shock, I mean, I just was so thirsty. I wanted water more than anything. And so I was just begging him, and we were just like, you know, we'll just take little sips, you know, just a little bit here and there. Needed some water. 
But, you know, we tried to keep our sense of humor. I looked at his phone and I was like, hey, man, that kind of looks like a pork chop. How about a pork chop and a beer up here, huh? <laughs> We're just trying to keep our cool. I mean, I was trying to do the best that I knew with the information that I had. I had just taken my woofer that um, last spring, so I knew I had to stop the bleeding. I should have stuffed some gauze in there, but I was worried about infection. I mean, there was debris in there. And I just knew how to stop the bleeding and try to make him as comfortable as I could until rescuers came. Yeah. I hadn't had a bar on her cell phone. For some reason, I wasn't able to get service. And she just had that one single bar for the time that she made that call. There was no service after that, which was also incredibly fortuitous. We were patched through the Rangers, and both Haddon and I happened to know the Ranger who answered and then also the Ranger that was the IC from my understanding, at least coordinating the rescue. So that was nice that they knew us and knew some of our experience and what we could do, which was actually in many ways very little at that point, other than to call in the rescue and to also answer the questions of the rangers. And that allowed Sahir to basically at that point do all of the things that he needed to do, which was from what we could see, lower Lars down. Lars was able to get gear in. Sahir was able to also eventually escape the belay safely. And in the meantime, we were talking to the rangers about what we could observe. And we could see at that point that Lars was really seriously injured. He was an absolute hero. On this day, J-Link climbing ranger Case Martin answered the emergency call as the park's SAR coordinator and tried to gather as much information about the incident as he could. Thanks to the call from Haddon and Julia, the rangers had a pretty good idea of what they were up against. Ranger Philip Edmonds was assigned to be the team's short hauler. Listeners of The Fine Line might remember Philip from our very first episode. He's definitely been around the block a few times. I don't remember exactly what I was doing that day when I got called to to come assist with this rescue but i showed up when the page went out case was like yeah i'd like you to go on the recon flight with uh dave weber and noah and uh see what's going on along with the spotter scotty i think we have a good idea that this climber's got um, bilateral leg injuries and open open fracture and is going to need short haul extraction from his location so that's basically what we geared up to do Generally, yeah, we always do a recon flight if we can. And so those guys probably saw us coming in thinking maybe they were going to oh, get, get taken away, right? That's like, right. why is he made right. yeah. They're but, here. Um, we kind of slow things down to kind of do things in the correct way so we have what we need. And so on that recon flight, we were able to locate Sahir and, and Lars on the rock. And, yeah, we could see the blood streak running down the rock. And it was like, all right, yeah, this is this is definitely... A severe injury here that I'm going to be dealing with. So got a good idea of what things we're going to need. And we were able to put um, Noah Ronskowski and Dave Weber down in the meadows so they could start responding with ropes for a ground-based rescue in case a helicopter shut down or, or if um, the winds kicked up. And we, with our initial plan was to insert via short haul and, and do a short haul extraction of, of Lars. I grabbed a bunch of splitting material and our BLS blitz kit. I'm just an EMT. You know, in this situation, it was kind of like, all right, he's kind of in a, not necessarily burning building, but like his, his main 
um, medical need is to get his transport from his location, which is a technical spot. He needed to get down into the front country so he could get packaged up even better. So after the briefing, we it was uh, Scott Gunther, Dave Weber, and Phil Edmonds and I. We, we got in the helicopter and departed for Garnet Canyon. So yeah, my name is Steve Wilson. I uh, am a helicopter pilot. I've been flying for over 18 years. Uh, Ten of those have been right here in Jackson. I've been fortunate enough to fly in places like Hawaii and Alaska and the Grand Canyon. Nowadays, I fly summers as the pilot for Teton Hell Attack, doing firefighting operations. And we also work with Grand Teton National Park. We fly with the Jenny Lake Climbing Rangers, performing search and rescue operations. And uh, in the wintertime, I fly for Teton County Search and Rescue. As we're flying up Garnet Canyon, uh, we're looking at the open book, and it was not difficult to spot them there on a, a ledge about a third of the way up from the bottom of the canyon. And as we got closer, it was, it was very apparent of the severity of, of Lars' injury. You could see them sitting on the, on the ledge, and Lars's leg was hanging over the ledge, and about five feet below was a rock that was covered in blood. So it, you could tell he was had a significant leg injury. So we did the recon, and with the recon, we're testing the winds. The winds were high that day up at the lower saddle, and typically that'll translate into higher winds that funnel down the canyons. But fortunately for us that day, the, the winds, we were kind of shadowed by the, the area that this was in, so we weren't dealing with strong winds. So we looked at the scene, and we were determining whether we could get the rescuer into the ledge. Um, it was a near vertical face. So I hovered down at the same altitude as the patient and got the checked out my altimeter. And then I climbed 150 feet and determined whether I'd have enough rotor clearance to get close enough to the wall to get Phil up there or one of the rescuers up there. I determined that we wouldn't have enough rotor clearance. So I climbed another 100 feet and at about 100, 100, 240 feet, there was an overhang and then a bench. So that bench actually allowed me to get enough rotor clearance so I can get close enough to the wall where we could put a rescuer in. So we determined that, that we would need a 250-foot rope. Those guys got a few pictures, and then uh, we went and got set up for a short haul mission. We landed at the Meadows, and which is just up canyon of the open book. We landed there, and Dave and Phil hooked up the, the long line. We have two different hooks on the belly, so the, they hooked up a Y lanyard, which uh, connects those two hooks to a single point on the rope. Got the rope strung out, and then Phil got prepared for me to go ahead and pick him up and head over the open book. So what we'll do is we'll get either one or two rescuers. They determined it would be only one rescuer on this one just because the space that was on that ledge wasn't quite enough space for two guys. So Phil was going to go in, and Scott Gunther was going to be my spotter. So the spotter's duty is when my head is out the window, looking down at the rescuer, trying to put them in onto the ledge or wherever we're setting that rescuer, he's looking at my power gauges, especially when we're at higher altitudes, um, making sure we're good there. He's also making hand communications with, uh, with the rescuer, just in case I lose communication with him. And he's also looking at my rotor clearance on my blind side um, while my head's out the window. So it's a pretty important job. So we got set up. We lifted. I picked Phil. We spun around and and got set up for the approach. So 
real slow approach, controlled approach, uh, kind of get set up where you're, you're coming in at a, a decent glide angle. You don't want to swing the rescuer into the wall. So as we got closer and closer, Phil and I were communicating um, and super important to have that good communication between the pilot and the rescuer. So as we got closer and closer, I'm looking up and I'm looking at my rotors and I'm looking at the proximity to the wall. And uh, so I'm kind of scanning between that, my power gauges and uh, the rescuer. And at the same time, Scott's, uh, he's, he's watching the, the rotors as well. And as we get closer, that overhang, we the rescuer will give me a five zero, four zero, three zero, just to kind of give me that cadence of, of that approach to the wall. And he gets to a one zero. And so he's, he's 10 feet above the, the patient. And we're getting closer and closer to the wall. Just about, I get eye level and we're probably eight or 10 feet away from the wall. I butt up against that, that overhang. So that last split second, I, I lose sight of Phil. And I know he's stable, I know he's not moving, so I, I kind of hold, hover there. And that's where the communication comes in, where it's really important. And he, he tells me five feet, come up five feet. So I, I come up five feet, I'm, I still don't see him. So I come up five feet and that rope is just up against that overhang and all of a sudden I see that rope go slack. So now I know that Phil's on the wall. So I just hold hover there. I was able to touch the rock about 10 or 15 feet below, see here in large or, or just off to the left, was able to climb up the pilot just saw me hit the rock and get stable and felt the rope go slack it's amazing they can kind of feel that difference and then we have good communications with avionics to the to the helicopter and i was able to communicate that i was secure i took a second to inspect the anchor that that lars built and i think sahir had backed it up with a few more cams at that point it it was adequate it was a, a secure anchor for for at least you don't want to really keep the helicopter attached to the mountain for any extended period of time. Once he says he's secure, then uh, I was able to kind of pull away from that wall. We had about 10 foot of rotor clearance uh, away from the wall during that, that operational period. So once I got a good visual on him, I just kind of held the rope there and uh, essentially held him on belay while he found some anchors so he could get clipped into the wall. Because of obvious reasons, basically, if you get an updraft or downdraft, the helicopter can't perform if it's attached to the, to the mountain. So I just briefly just wanted to make sure that anchor was secure. And then I was able to clip into that anchor and unclip from the helicopter. The pilot knew I was, I was going to be connecting him to the mountain for five or ten seconds. I communicated that I was clear of the helicopter and um, off those guys went. And then there was that transitional period where... Uh, he was able to find some anchors and and clip into the wall and there's there's a time where the helicopter is actually clipped into the wall as well because you know we're holding him on belay not a not a big deal for us um you know if we were ever, ever to have an emergency and being clipped to the wall as long as i know phil's secure on that wall i can uh, i can release that rope from the helicopter if i have to um you know we have two separate hooks um on the the belly of the helicopter that are kind of backups to each other. So if one were to inadvertently fail, then the other one's going to catch the rescuer and keep them from falling. Each one of those hooks has two different releases. So it's very, you got to be very intentional to release those hooks if you have to. But if we had to, and uh, we could have released those and, and got clear of the wall, um, we'd never do that if, 
the rescuer's hanging or somebody's on the end of the line. But if I knew he was secure, we could have got free of that. Yeah, we had a very good conversation prior to putting him there on how we would go about the operation. And and it's just it's very slow and calculated. And, and as we get closer and closer, we're just he's just kind of hanging there. And it seems like it's just very tedious. You, you don't want to obviously swing him in there or come in too fast and, and bump the rescuer off the wall or even put him on top of the, the patient. So, yeah, it's just really slow and steady. They were obviously Lars was in a rough position, but I, I did see that he was conscious and alert enough and following simple instructions. Sahir was with it and not in a state of shock and able to follow simple instructions. And so I was like, well, that's that's going to be working to my favor. I have uninjured partner that can assist me in, in certain things. So that kind of worked towards me thinking that I'm going to try to see if we can we can sort this out. It was tight enough on that ledge with the three of us that bringing in more and delaying to bring in more rangers wasn't a necessary thing. So I communicated that to the IC and, and stuck with the plan to, to stabilize Lars with what I have, do a short haul extraction with just, with just Lars and I. And knowing that uh, Dave Weber and Noah were on their way up to help Sahir with any issues he had getting himself off the mountain, off of also factored into that decision too. I was like, with the two women already there on scene and Lars being a, a trustworthy partner, I was able to to make the decision that, that I think we had the resources we need to to try that extraction of Lars. How were you guys feeling when Phil showed up on the scene? Grateful yeah. as a godson. We're like, Bill, anything ever. you need, let us know we're here to help. I mean, Lars is just like, you tell me, man. Yeah. I'm not in a good way. Bone sticking out, but I'm ready to help out. And so was I. I was ready. I had already coiled up the rope just because, like you said, you don't want the helicopter anchored. You don't want anything to be, get caught up. I coiled it up. I kind of tried to make it as neat as I could, but there wasn't much space. When Phil was there, like I had to like climb up a little bit and just give him space to work. With like, like the size of a couch, a twin bed. How, how much? Is it smaller? Like... Yeah, I mean, it was a little stair step, so there was a few different options, but all the, the ledges were a foot or less and then the le ledge that Lars was on was kind of a down sloping ledge that so wasn't very ideal as a slab it was a little bit of a, a slab corner so he could kind of use his arms to to kind of keep him in place pretty well because he was very capable with his upper body still which was helpful it was tight that initial recon flight was a heartbreak though because I thought they were out and then I saw him take pictures I didn't know that that's how it worked yeah, I was just either. like oh no they're leaving why yeah. are they leaving what's wrong are they gonna have to climb up to us yeah. you know I just wanted Lars out of there that was the only thought in my head and the fact that he was keeping his cool kept me nice and controlled you know just wanted to get him off that was my only mission at that point making sure he got off that mountain I was real worried, you know, my legs were not going to work. Like, there was no other way I was going to get out of there. And seeing Phil getting on the rock was just elation for me. You know, like, the cavalry is here. I am so thankful, so grateful. And just, you know, I was willing to do anything. I was open to whatever and wanted to help in any way that I could, too. was going to try and make it as easy on Phil as possible because... That was an incredible position to be in, and you handled it so well. You were so calm and came on and just clear direction, knew what you wanted to do, and got it done. 
initially like assessed Lars, tried to figure out what his injuries were. It seemed like his pelvis was fine. His harness was was working and intact. Um, his upper body, I could just tell by the way he was moving around or could stabilize himself that his upper body was not compromised, no head or spinal issues. So I, I could rule out all those concerns. And the fact that he was sitting in his harness and the harness was intact was a good thing because otherwise we would have needed to put him in a screamer suit, which is actually would have been preferable if we had more people and a, a better ledge to manage him with. We come in and, and extract with just harnesses ourselves all the time, so it's certainly adequate security-wise, but we want to make the patient as comfortable as possible. So I was able to get a, a vacuum splint on the open fracture. The bleeding was mostly controlled by the tourniquet that Sahir had placed. It was kind of a reach to get down to do patient care from the location I was at, so I was able to just manage to get the splint on the severely injured leg and then has hurt the knee injured leg. I just did an anatomical splint by just taping the the injured leg to the other splint. I definitely would have done more if I had a better working environment, but it definitely just stabilized his legs to where they weren't bouncing around nearly as much. The other problem here was helping me with was getting the anchor built a nice equalized, just standard anchor so that we could just clean everything up nice and clean so we could get Lars off the anchor that was built in a very impromptu way. It was not It was a secure anchor, but it's not what you would build if you're starting from scratch. So it was just like a mess of a bunch of secure cams all just clamped together. So there was a little bit of fiddling to, to just clean that up and get him on two new lanyards onto the the new anchor. And we I think we had a nice five-point anchor by the time Sahir was done with it. I equalized it all up and then moved myself and then Lars onto that anchor. In doing so, unfortunately, it extended Lars a little bit down and he was on decent ledge, but it made that ledge just so it was a little bit of a stretch that he could relax his legs on. And so unfortunately, when I moved him onto the new anchor, it was a little bit less comfortable for him. But Luckily, at that point, we were getting pretty close to being at that point where we could extract cleanly from the location. So I gave Scotty and uh, the pilot, Steve Wilson, a heads up that I was going to be ready in about 10 minutes or so. We just pre-gamed everything with Lars and Sahir on exactly what was going to need to happen. And uh, the order and the comms involved just tried to stay nice and calm and just let them know exactly what needed to happen. Basically... And the order is super critical there because connecting up to the helicopter and you want to limit that exposure. At this moment, Sahir, who'd been remaining calm under the immense pressure of caring for his injured friend, was tasked with yet another immense job, releasing the lanyard that would set Lars, Philip, and the helicopter free from the wall. Lars did have a tensioned lanyard on that anchor, and so getting that tensioned lanyard unclipped was going to be a bit of a crux. It was an extendable lanyard. We have some Purcell Pressic. You can extend that lanyard and create slack, and, and Lars could do that hand stem to kind of keep himself in place a bit. So it seemed like everything was going to go well. Of course, I had a knife ready to, to cut that lanyard free once he was secure to the helicopter line if that plan A didn't work. And the pilot did an amazing job. Our pilot, Steve Wilson's one of the more senior pallets we've ever worked with. 
just an incredible skill set flying, but just operationally, just very talented and knowing that he's going to be the guy like plucking you off has a huge calming effect for you when you're in those situations. So Sahir was able to unclip that lanyard. Definitely as a team effort between like Lars being able to stem himself in place with his arms and Sahir helping me with the unclip because I had to unclip myself and just make sure the big picture of the scene was all squared away as well and do the comms. So what was interesting was that I was cool and calm the whole time. I was just wanting to get Lars out of there. I was like, I'm going to do everything. Anything that Phil says, I'm going to follow it to like the letter. You know, whatever you need, let's just make this as quick and as efficient as possible. When I picked them up, I, I was intentionally away from the wall just a little bit so they'd swing away from the wall just as I unweighted them off of the ledge. Um, so, yeah, they swung out away from the wall and we flew away and headed down to Lucan Meadows where an ambulance was waiting. I didn't see him actually unclip. I wasn't sure if that was Phil or him. But you can see see once they were free and I, I and Phil communicated that to me, then as I was unweighting him, Lars and Sahir, you could see him give him a high five embrace so that's why i knew i was like all right well he's he's doing all right you know that's good to see that uh, he's in good spirits i was so aware in that moment truthfully how many lives were at stake um i was really aware of the pilot the jenny lake ranger who is hanging underneath the helicopter on the short haul extraordinarily aware of Lars and Sahir and their location on the climb. And um, I remember saying to Haddon, like, I was like, we, we need to be aware that something might not go well because it was an unbelievably technical feat. And I remember particularly being focused on that pilot even though I've never met that pilot, but just feeling so connected with that pilot that that pilot would have the ability to do what the pilot did, which was absolutely astounding. And and then also particularly that Jenny Lake Ranger who managed to finally get in and be pulled into where Sahir and Lars was. And I remember actually crying when he contacted Lars just it, it, it was such sort of like a series of like heroic events to get him to Lars. You know, I, I knew at that point that Lars's chances, you know, were, were really good. Oh, that was just like total relief. I mean, I knew I was going to an ambulance, you know, I knew I was at, in good hands, just absolute elation, relief, just knowing that I've I got out of there. Gratitude. Huge gratitude. And the scenery wasn't too bad either. And once I started flying, too, that was the first time where my legs, I felt like, were super stable. And so the pain subsided immensely, able to take a a deep breath, and I knew I was going to be okay. It was quite the sight seeing Phil and Lars just getting lifted up in the short haul and seeing them flying off and kind of in front of the grand. It It was pretty cool. To see that site. I was like, he made it. That's it. Did my job. <laughs> now I got to get down. <laughs> you must have been pretty exhausted at that point, Sahir. It didn't hit me until I did the second to last rappel. That rappel down, build anchors. Um, Phil gave me his rack because Lars had all our cams. So if I hadn't grabbed his cams, I would have no way to get down. 
eventually, like, you know, just flaking the rope out and started hitting me. And when I hit the ground, that's when the adrenaline dump really, really hit me. I wanted to throw my helmet. Oh, I was just like, that sucks. But luckily, Noah and Dave were down there, and they were comforting me, and they're like, hey, you're you're supposed to feel this way. This is good. Um, also, um, Julia and Haddon were the two ladies that were part of the um, rescue that called search and rescue. And I'm so grateful for them because yeah, they walked down with me. Yeah, they walked down with me, you know, like – Made sure I was okay. We went and got some water once we got to the boulders. So I'm extremely grateful for those two ladies and Noah and Dave and the whole team. Well, I can say I was in this until the final second where no more help was needed. And in fact, when the Jenny Lake Rangers hiked up because Lars was short hauled off in a just unbelievably impressive effort but then of course the here had to wrap down and build anchors for himself to wrap down and we were the only ones still left there we were talking Sahir through that you know being like Sahir double triple check everything make sure that your anchor's really good like are the pieces all good because we realized at that point how easy it would be to make a mistake since we were all in a very different mindset. And then two of the rangers hiked up during that time and got to the bottom pretty much right at the time that Sahir made it down to us. And so we were all there together when Sahir finally got down to the ground. I have a background in managing crisis lines. I did that for a couple of years. And so being there for someone in that moment was something that felt really right. And I really wanted to emotionally be there as well as physically be there. And I do remember, I think this is one of my biggest, clearest memories of the day was I remember Sahir just sitting there dealing with what had just happened. And I remember him saying, you know, asking questions about about climbing again. And I remember distinctly saying, that's not a decision that you need to make right now. Like, you don't need to decide what the mountains are going to be for you in the second. And I think that that's a really important point that I remind myself of whenever I'm in a situation like this in the mountains and truthfully, whenever I'm in a similarly risky emotional situation in Africa. He could have easily just sat and waited for Noah and and Dave to climb up, decompress, but knowing how he was responding to simple commands and, or, you know, sometimes not so simple commands in how he performed, I felt good. I just wanted to make sure I was like, hey, it's definitely going to take a couple repels. You can't get down in one. Just I wanted him to be prepared for, you know, when you're off solo, your buddy left and it's kind of a big adrenaline dump. Whether you're prepared for it or not, it, it happens. And uh, luckily he, he seemed to keep it together. And um, At the right time, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Once so, Lars was in good hands, yeah. then, you know, I was able to just <laughs> yeah. take a deep breath and really experience everything that had just happened. So, I mean, we were there for a while, and I was with him. I was holding his hand. I was like, hey, you're going to be fine, you know. It was hot. And, yeah, I was just waiting, a waiting game, basically. After I put the tourniquet, I couldn't do much. I'd put a backpack underneath him to try to stabilize him, but there wasn't much space. I mean, it was a sloping ledge. When I got to the hospital, found out I had a tib-fib fracture that goes through my ankle. 
in my left leg. And then in my right leg, I shattered my heel in three, or broke my heel in three spots. I shattered the, my tibial plateau, which is like the pocket your knee sits in. I chipped off like the whole left side of it. It was in like five pieces. And then I tore my LCL, my PCL, and my ACL. Got to the hospital, went into surgery the 25th, had a second surgery on the 27th. Um, they put in an external fixator, which is like, you know, a cage thing that goes around my left leg to hold my ankle in place. I got four screws in my left ankle holding my tibia and my fibia together. And then I have a plate and five screws in my right knee right now. When they go and repair my ACL and my PCL and my LCL, they will take that hardware out. For my left ankle, I think the only treatment really for it now, just the nature of the break was so severe, I lost a lot of the joint space there. The only real treatment I could do for it is either like an ankle fusion, so they'll fuse my talus to my tibia and my fibia, or they'll do an ankle replacement. Got a lifetime of healing left from this, but immediately after, I was wheelchair-bound, wasn't able to walk for three months, had the external fixator in for two months. I wasn't able to bend my right leg for like two months. Just, yeah, lots of, lots of sitting around and reflecting and just being grateful for the whole team of people that were involved in getting me down and the search and rescue organization here jenny lake rangers are the reason why i'm still alive and sahir is an excellent climbing partner i mean he was there with me in the hospital while i was there every day coming by checking up on me you know something that's really cool about the community is they all rally together and especially, you know, being from here, the support was coming from everywhere. And that makes a big difference, too, just in, the, like, the mental strength side of things, just trying to stay positive and get through it. A long road, but I'm incredibly, incredibly lucky, incredibly blessed. I mean, people fall off the back step of the deck and break their neck and, you know, never walk again and fell high up in the alpine, you know, 40 feet, and I'm walking today. So I'm glad I got to learn my lesson because not many people do. I would pick where I want to push myself a lot better. Being 200 feet in the air four miles into the backcountry is not the place for you to go and push yourself. That's a place where you've got to be rock solid and you have to know your skill set and you have to feel comfortable with what you're doing. And if you don't feel comfortable, you got to speak up. you got to tell somebody and you got to do something about that because it's just not the place you know there's the boulder park there's indoor climbing in in other places across the pass and we're going to get a climbing gym here those are the places where you should go and you should push yourself and you should feel comfortable falling and maybe taking some risks because it's a much more safe environment for you to do that even if you feel good and it's a beautiful day and you you think it's not going to be super hard you have to always approach it with that respect the mountains is an unforgiving place. You, you can do everything right and still get into trouble in the Tetons. It's yeah. just the objective hazards there. For sure. That's just a huge lesson for me because I'm a young 20-something, you know, chomping at the bit to play in the mountains. And, you know, it's being able to take that step back and want to climb tomorrow. Thank you for listening to The Fine Line. I'm Matt Hansen, the producer and writer for this podcast. Editing and sound are by Melinda Binks. Thank you again to Roadhouse Brewing for sponsoring The Fine Line and to KHOL 89.1 FM for the use of their studio. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero. 
a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Learn more at backcountryzero.com.